I'm a historian, which I say to not really as an apology, but as an it's. Um, I've always sort of wanted to um, present this work to people in the social sciences um, and to get responses uh, from there. And as you'll hear, it's it sort of emerged from sort of dialogue with uh, some work in the social sciences. So, and that work is around the concept of of welfare chauvinism. There's a body of work, and here I realise um, I'm probably bringing calls to Newcastle, um, which sort of argues that the diversity, immigration, ethnic diversity, is bad for welfare, that it diminishes the social solidarity necessary for redistributive welfare systems. We go back to 1986, the American political scientist Gary Freeman argued that there was a progressive dilemma between diversity and welfare, that increased immigration in Europe would lead to an Americanization of European welfare states. The argument was sort of taken up in a, in, in a sort of relatively high profile way in this country by David Goodhart in Prospect magazine in 2004. Goodhart, from a sort of left-realist perspective, said you can have a Swedish welfare system provided you are a homogeneous society with intensely shared values. And so the message there was pretty clear. And I think, actually, sort of Goodhart article was followed a year or so later by the book on the New East End by... Jeff Dench and Katie Gavron, and it, which was Michael Young's last book, which argued uh, from a similar perspective and argued that uh, Bangladeshi immigration to the East End of London had been corrosive of support for the welfare state, above all uh, corrosive of uh, as criteria for housing, which they focus on, shifted from residence to need. So immigrants could come, they didn't have long-term residence in the East End, and he argued that this had both generated antipathy to the immigrants and eroded support for the welfare state. And this sort of current, I think, also sort of lay behind the cross-parliamentary group headed by Frank Field and Lord Soames, which, again, took up these themes as immigration was undermining support for the welfare state. More recently, Freeman has weighed in again, saying that there's a growing body of evidence that suggests more ethnic heterogeneous societies display levels of support, uh, lower levels of support for redistributive welfare programs, lower levels of social trust. That's in 2009. The argument has been modified, and, and indeed, uh, this modification is really where the argument goes. It's been modified by Edward Coning more recently, who surveyed 12 European and ex-European states, including the UK, and actually finds general support for welfare programs holding up in the face of immigration, but increasing support for what he terms welfare chauvinism, and others term welfare chauvinism. In other words, a desire to maintain welfare systems but to reform them so that they exclude outsiders. And, in, and really, this is where Freeman's claim lies. 
He writes, the available evidence seems to support the proposition that increasing ethnic heterogeneity is likely to be associated with less enthusiasm for programs that are redistributive or targeted at minority groups. So the exclusion of minority groups and uh, that I want to address <coughs> this afternoon. In the sort of explanations which are offered for welfare chauvinism, there is a, a tendency to um, treat it as a natural phenomenon. And I'll, I'll uh, explain that just in a, in a moment. It, but more, it's underpinned by the assumption that societies are like clubs, and it's natural that members of these clubs will prefer to share and redistribute goods among members. This is sometimes expressed in philosophical terms, for example, by the American philosopher Michael Walzer, or in commonsensical ways by the historian James Taylor, who, who has written on the English poor law, something I'll spend some time talking about myself. Taylor tells us such restrictions are essential to any welfare system based on compulsory provision for the poor by public authority, were the necessary consequence of a full acceptance of the pauper's right to poor relief, and this side of paradise, he writes, anything else is unimaginable. In the social science literature, there seem to be sort of three main arguments brought <coughs> to bear to account for welfare chauvinism, and, and this is where it sort of falls back to being, as it were, a natural phenomenon. One derives from social psychology. People, it's argued, as they develop concepts of the self, have a natural tendency to develop group identities and to classify people as part of the in-group or the out-group, so uh, the whole process of othering. Another set of explanations builds among Robert Putnam's work on trust, arguing that diversity erodes trust. Again, this seems to be presented as a sort of natural, inevitable consequence of diversity. And most egregiously, perhaps, Freeman is, is now sort of opting for a social Darwinist perspective. Freeman, in his latest publication on, on the subject, well, the latest one that I've seen, writes, racial or ethnic animosity is genetically inbred. Whatever the potential benefits, replacement migration runs against deeply ingrained human instincts. These arguments have not passed without criticism. Um, the American social scientist Martin Krepaz astutely points out that it is not ethnic identity that gives rise to human beings, but human beings that give meaning to ethnic identity. So, so Freeman gets it the wrong way around and, and, and fails to pay attention to the social processes underpinning what he sees as a natural response. But Krepaz's more substantive arguments about welfare chauvinism have little purchase on the British case. He suggests that societies that developed welfare states before immigration occurred built up a sense of trust that insulated them from welfare chauvinism. But this does not fit at all well with the British experience where um, increased levels of immigration after 1945 actually coincided with the foundation decades of the uh, welfare state. And indeed, the process through which the welfare state became more closed to groups of immigrants really is after the welfare state is well established from the late 1980s onwards, I would say. There is a, a good collection of essays, I think, by 
um, Andrew Geddes and Bonnets, whose first name I can't remember, on immigration and welfare states in Europe, published in 2000. And they, too, do question the inevitability of welfare chauvinism, but don't really try to produce um, a, 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 a synthetic explanation. And again, some of the elements which they introduce in, 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 into the sort of ad hoc explanations don't apply very well in the British case. For example, in France and Germany, it has been the case that an independent judiciary has been able to preserve welfare rights for uh, immigrant groups. Of course, uh, a judiciary sort of independent of the executive um, in that way does not exist, has not existed in Britain. <coughs> and that indeed was the key to taking benefits away from asylum seekers in 1996, or all certain categories of asylum seekers. So that, if you like, is a sort of social science background to what I want to talk about. So with that in mind, I'm going to try to offer a sort of a slightly breathless survey of English welfare since the 17th century, not as advertised since the 1800s. And first of all, this will involve probably more information about the poor law than you can to receive. But, but it's important, I claim it's important and useful to think about. The first important thing to understand about early modern Britain, indeed early modern Europe, is it was a highly mobile society. Most people did not live and die in the parish in which they were born. In the Buckinghamshire parish of Cardington in 1782, for example, there was a sort of a census of, of all the adults there, just 30% of the adults in Cardington in 1782 had been born in the parish. In 1851, in English towns, amongst those aged 30, over 35, only 30% had been born in the town in which they were living. Particularly important since the elderly were those are a prime group applying for relief from the poor law. So people were mobile, but entitlements to welfare were much less mobile than the people. There was a welfare system. There was a welfare system before the welfare state, and this was the poor law, which was sort of codified rather than introduced at the very beginning of the 17th century. And what the poor law did was that it required each parish to raise a poor rate, to tax itself, to um, support those who could not support themselves, though they were also supposed to provide work, which they didn't do. It was supposed to be a form of workfare. That didn't happen. That's another story, which I won't talk about now. The essential point is that parishes raised funds, dispersed funds, and administered the funds themselves. Parish officials, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, were supervised by local justices of the peace in, in these functions, and if cases went to further appeal, they went up to the court of the king's bench. So migrant, internal migrants in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, structurally, so far as welfare were concerned, was concerned, were in the same position as international migrants once you have welfare states based at a national level. Because if they moved from one parish to another parish, they lost their entitlement to welfare. 
there were some pathways through which they could gain entitlement in their new parish of residence, but that was not so easy. So in this system, in which there were about 9,000 parishes, as, as Thomas Ruggles, who was an 18th century chronicler of the Poor Laws, wrote, it became a prudential caution from the time parish rates were first collected for the relief of the poor, that it should be applied only to those that belong to the parish. In other words, the poor law officials would take care to make ensure that those who receive poor relief actually belong to the taxpayers in that parish. In other words, what I am setting up here, describing here, is a system in which welfare chauvinism, or, or what you know, contemporary social scientists would call welfare chauvinism, was enacted, and it was enacted for, for structural reasons. An MP, William Hay, observed in, 1790, in 1735, it is certain that the obligation on each parish to maintain its own poor, and in consequence of that a distinct interest, are the route from which every parish <coughs> is in a state of expensive war with all the rest of the nation. What he meant by that was that parishes went to court over trying to spend vast sums of money trying to prove that a pauper belonged to another parish. So they, there were there's loads of legal cases concerned with this system, a system which was known as the law of settlement. Hay went on, each parish regards the poor of all other places as aliens, and sounds familiar, and cares not what becomes of them if it can banish them from its own society. So, in a sense, what is interesting about this is that here is a system of welfare chauvinism, but it's not chauvinism on an ethnic or racial basis. It's, it's something which is institutionally driven. Well, what was the effect of this? My view, which is probably not, not necessarily the view of every historian, sorry, but it will be after I've published on <laughs> the article that shows it. My view is that the main effect was not actually to be seen in, in the policies of removal. So far as we can tell, parishes removed just a handful, maybe two or three, on average, two or three people each year. So that's not where the system really hit. And lots of historians have written about the ways in which paupers and parishes arranged to support people who lived away from their parish of residence. Certainly an, some, an extra legal system called non-resident relief or extra parochial relief took shape so that people who had migrated from their parish of settlement would write a letter I'm poor, my husband's died, I've got five children, help me out, or I will come home. So there was a threat in the letter that um, uh, these poor people were not completely powerless. And it certainly is the case that some people were helped to this extent. Um, so far as we can tell, and these are sort of guesstimates, it seems to me, and to others, that it's probably about 20% of poor law expenditure went on, on such cases in the early 19th century. But what is important to see is that the population that was living away from its parish of settlement was much higher than that 20%. It varied probably between 20 and 55%. Estimates that I've made on the basis of the 1834 uh, Royal Commission on the Poor Laws 
suggests that in 43% of places surveyed there, the proportion of labourers living outside their parishes of settlement was over 40%. So there's a gap between the 20% that got some form of non-resident relief and this 40%. And so the outcome was disentitlement of this stratum. They, when these people were poor, they had to make do, these migrants had to make do without poor relief. And there is quite a lot of qualitative evidence that I've collected which sort of bears this out. Um, and I'll skip some of this to make sure I get through the paper. But there is a, a very nice vignette that comes from the Thames Police Court from the 1850s. James Taylor Ingham, who was a magistrate, gave a report of what would happen in his court on a regular basis. Many persons come to ask the advice of the police magistrate, poor Irish people among, among others, but among others, not only poor Irish, internal migrants as well. They say, we have been to the parish officer to ask for relief. He will not give it. Then, then I say, you must go to the Board of Guardians. Oh yes, we have been before the Board of Guardians. Will they not give you relief? Why, the Board say they will send us back to Ireland. That, that is to say, your case may be brought before a magistrate and inquired into. Those poor persons, generally speaking, say, oh, if that is so, we will go without relief. And you know, there are many, many examples that one could give of this. During the, de the worst depression of the 19th century, um, 1837 to 42, William Cook Taylor observed admiringly how in Lancashire men submit to hunger and all its attendant sufferings with an iron endurance which nothing can bend rather than be carried back to an agricultural district because they were sort of hanging on for the hanging on for the upturn. And sometimes employers would support these people through, uh, through charity, you know, for, uh, from sort of outside of the poor lord to hang on to uh, a labour force, but not always. This happened in the towns. It also seems to have happened in the countryside. The early 19th century essayist Sidney Smith suggests that it was widespread and systematic. He wrote, the best laborers in a village are commonly those who are living where they are not legally settled and have no right to ask for charity. By charity, he meant poor relief. For the plain, plain reason they have nothing to do, so, and they are the best laborers, for the plain reason that they have plain reason they have nothing to depend on but their own exertions. In short, for them, the poor laws hardly exist. And they are such as the great mass of English peasantry would be if we had escaped the curse of these laws altogether. Sidney Smith was a Malthusian and thought that the poor laws were responsible for the <coughs> growth of population, growth of, of poverty. So, in short, disentitlement could take three forms. Uh, there was the form in which the poor, as it were, stayed in place and hid themselves from the poor law. This applied, for example, to those who withdrew their applications for relief to evade removal, but also to a large portion of those who were actually sent away and removed. In Ipswich, um, in the early Victorian period, the poor law union estimated that seven out of ten of those who were sent away made their way back to the town. And obviously, once they made their way back to the town, they had to survive without poor relief. Secondly, there was a form of disentitlement which arose when 
between negotiations between the parish of residence and the parish of settlement, a particular poor family simply fell through the cracks and got ignored because no one would take responsibility for them. And third, and I, I haven't dealt with this in detail, but it does seem that when um, people were relieved living away from their parish of settlement, they were often relieved at a lower rate than people who were living within their parish of settlement. The best evidence for, for disentitlement actually comes after this system was reformed. And I'll speak about the reforms in a moment. But the reforms created a category of being irremovable. So that if you had lived, at first it was five, if you lived in a place for five years, then you had to be relieved on the spot. So this brought a whole section of people within the poor law where they were living who had hitherto been excluded. And by 1864, in a survey of northern and midland towns, 36% of all those in receipt of poor relief came into this category of being irremovable. So one can sort of look at the 20% being relieved by non-resident relief at the start of the century and take the 36% from 1864 and get a rough and and ready view of the level of disentitlement. Although I'll just say that that figure of 36% would rise a year later, we don't have the figures, but at that time, uh, um, in 1865, the period of residence fell to only one year. So it probably grew to another 5% or so perhaps after that. So uh, there was welfare chauvinism, it wasn't ethnically or racially based. It, it led to disentitlement. But what is, I think, equally important and equally interesting to notice is the change after 1846. Rather than saying this is a sort of inevitable feature of all welfare systems, what is extraordinary and what sort of accounts of welfare chauvinism can't really explain is how and why the system was opened up after 1846. So from 1846, the relation of migrants to the poor law underwent rapid and radical reform. Um, at first, in, in that year, anyone who'd been in a parish for five years and had not gained a settlement was deemed irremovable. At Great, uh, and at Great Yarmouth, it was reported, the new act has alleviated the sufferings of many who would otherwise have endured the extremes of privation and who, though fit subjects for relief, were debarred from it by the almost insurmountable difficulty of obtaining it from distant parishes. 1861, five years became three years, and in 1865, as I said, three years became one year. So rather than seeing a growth of welfare chauvinism, we see its attenuation. Equally significant is that this was extended to the Irish. Um, there's there was sort of a wonderful fight between the poor law commissioners, because by that time the poor law had been centralised, administration, there was oversight from London, and, the, and a number of towns and parishes sort of introduced this law, but it was convenient for them to say, well, obviously, they didn't mean the Irish as well. 
But the poor law commissioners intervened very heavily and ensured that the law was extended to the Irish. There's a second and earlier and unrelated but equally important aspect of change, which is that until, until 1803, it was unclear whether aliens, that people who are not British subjects, were entitled to poor relief. And a judgment of, of that year in 1803 took away all, all ambiguity. The argument had been that because someone who was born out of Great Britain, outside England, in fact, couldn't have a parish of settlement, therefore they didn't have a place that was obliged to relieve them, therefore they weren't entitled to poor relief. And Lord Justice Ellenborough said actually this went against notions of natural right, and he said that for reasons of propriety and decorum, we have to pretend that the judge who had made this previous judgment had never said such a thing, because it was a, it was a shame to his memory that, it was, uh, 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 that this had been recorded. What is interesting is that Ellenborough was not a, a, a cosy liberal. I mean, I don't quite understand why Ellenborough did this, but he was... Um, um, he, he was also he was a judge very active in the conservative reaction against the French Revolution. So th that's something which actually bears ex examination. So what is important here is, I think, as a blow to the idea that welfare chauvinism is natural and inevitable. Rather, what we find is a widening circle of obligation, one that extends to the Irish and to a degree to non-British subjects. Okay, quickly... Moving breathlessly into the 20th century, obviously from the start of the 20th century, new forms of welfare are being introduced. I think it's important to see that different forms of welfare have different consequences in relation to outsiders. Obviously, once you have welfare being provided at a national level, the outsider is an immigrant, not an internal migrant. 1908, there were the first old age pensions introduced in Britain. Immigrants were excluded from old age pensions. But in 1911, national insurance was introduced for the first time. And aliens who had been in the country for five years were included um, within the scheme for national insurance. Five years was the amount of time you had to be in the country before you could apply to be naturalised as a British subject. So that, so that figure didn't come out of, out of the blue. It was seen as being sort of a marker of a commitment to the country. So this is actually a template going forward through the interwar years. Most benefits did not distinguish between British subjects and aliens. Above all, this was the case for contributory benefits based on the insurance principle. Unemployment benefit, health insurance benefit, and contributory old age and widows and orphans pensions. Those, there were two aspects of the pension system. Aliens were included in one and not in the other. But the poor law in the interwar period remained as a, sort of, uh, as a residual element of the benefit system. And one of the sort of interesting features of, of this period was the attempt to 
exclude the Irish from the from the poor law. Um, this sort of came from Scotland in the late 1920s and was in part driven by sort of rampant anti-Catholicism, but it was also it, 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 um, there was also sort of an economic element and it, it was the case that whereas in Scotland the Irish born accounted for 2.5% of the population, they accounted for 7% of those in receipt of poor relief. So the Irish were uh, disproportionately represented among paupers. And of course, the other sort of element, important element here was the creation of the Irish Free State in 1921. Um, The Irish Free State was no longer part of the United Kingdom and thus no longer governed by the law of settlement. But it wasn't yet a full co- a foreign country in the full sense of the term. Until the 1930s, it was um, a, a dominion. And it was not under an obligation to international law to receive nationals who were deported from Britain. So there was this campaign to exclude uh, the Irish from the poor law in the interwar period. It got support uh, from the Minister of State, State for Scotland. The uh, Ministry of Labour got behind it. And um, you won't be surprised to hear that the Church of Scotland, the United Free Church of Scotland, and the Free Church of Scotland all got behind it as well. But crucially, it didn't succeed. So in, context, in a context where there was strong anti-Catholicism, disproportionate calls being made on the poor law, industrial depression, welfare chauvinism didn't didn't reassert itself. Briefly, post-1945, we see some broadly similar patterns. So, um, at first, for the first 40 years, with national assistance introduced in 1948, which replaced the poor law, no distinctions were made on grounds of nationality. Likewise, supplementary benefits introduced in 1966 applied irrespective of origin and the time spent in the country. Indeed, it was broadened as late as 1984 to allow people to apply who were um, seeking to vary their terms of stay in the country. Wonderfully, I think, in in, in the mid-1950s, Anirin Bevan extended um, free spectacles and prosthetics to at a foreign seaman in British ports. I mean, this outraged conservative opponents of the National Health Service who, um, who conjured a vision of the population of Arabia coming to Tilbury to get uh, free spectacles. But he, um, he, stood, he stood his ground. Um, of course, housing, a local authority housing, is um, a much less happy picture where... A residence requirements until the 1970s effectively excluded immigrants from uh, local authority housing. Things change really from the mid 1980s onwards, I think. The 1988 Immigration Act was the first of the post war immigration acts which had access to welfare as its main 
point of intervention. Clause 1 of the 1988 Immigration Act requires immigrants to have a sponsor who agreed to maintain them without recourse to public funds. And so this laid the ground for the habitual residence test of 1994 um, for means-tested benefits, and in 1996, the withdrawal of benefits from asylum seekers who did not apply for asylum immediately on arrival. Um, what that did, um, as many of you will know, was that it made asylum seekers the responsibility of local authorities. And I think that the consequences of that, I think, were disastrous. I'll stop this historical account in 1996, not because I'm a historian, I'm phobic of coming within 15 years of the, of the present, but because um, this is what I know best. And, and, I'll, and I'll use my last minutes in trying to account for this pattern or, or, or offer some thoughts about how we account uh, for this pattern. I mean, it seems to me that irrespective of whether I can account for this pattern, the pattern itself is interesting because it shows that there is no inevitability to the closeness of welfare systems. And given the literature on the sort of, which seems to regard welfare chauvinism as kind of hardwired, um, either in our genes or in our minds, um, that in itself is, is important. But obviously, I think we need to go on and to ask why different regimes exhibit different patterns of openness and closeness at different times. When I've written about this in the past, I've tried to draw a distinction between national and local welfare systems um, and between different types of benefit. I think it seems clear that where the cost is exposed of, of extending welfare to outgroups is exposed to, in local democracies, this can create difficulties. One way of seeing this is indeed the contrast between um, how immigrant access to housing was highly politicised after 1945, <coughs> but immigrant access to the NHS was not. And I think one has to look at the ways in which the two forms of welfare were financed and administered to understand that. I think it was also possible for national authorities in the 19th century to impose norms on local poor authorities. The case of the Irish is an interesting case in point. It's certainly not the case that people in London and the Poor Law Commission had a better view of the Irish than people working in, in local authorities. James Kay, one of the Poor Law Commissioners, for example, um, wrote a, a little pamphlet on the condition of the working classes in Manchester in 1832, which was plagiarised by Engels 12 years later. And sort of a lot of what Engels says about the Irish can be found in, in Kay's earlier, earlier pamphlet. So, so welfare wasn't extended to the Irish because the poor law commissioners thought that the Irish were fine, upstanding human beings, but they did have a line about uniformity. And of course, it, this didn't have an immediate cost for them, the cost of imposing uniformity 
was uh, devolved to a local to a local level. So there's an, a national local split. I think as well as I've sort of indicated, I think the type of benefit is um, is important here. I think the worst piece of sloppiness is the word that comes to mind in, in, in the existing literature is the way in which the welfare state is treated as a as a, as a thing, as, as, as an entity in itself. And so immigrants are either good or bad for the welfare state. But it seems to me that different sorts of benefit are better able to accommodate immigrants than others. Above all, contributory benefits, it seems to me, that the record of the 20th century shows are much better able to accommodate immigrants than either discretionary or universal benefits. But above all, discretionary benefits create problems for um, uh, immigrant groups. A benefit is no longer seen as a right or as a transaction, as in a contributory benefit, but as, as an act of charity, something um, which might be given or, or not. And in this respect, I think it's very important to see that um, the uh, attack on immigrants' welfare entitlements in the late 80s and 90s came in the wake of an, ass of an assault on uh, contributory and universal benefits by the Conservative government of those years. It, um, in 1979, 4.4 million were in receipt of supplementary benefits, the, the discretionary benefits. By 1995, its replacement income support was given to 9.8 million. So there's a big shift within the benefit system to a discretionary benefit. 9.8 million, that was 18% of the population was on income support in, in 1995. So it's not simply a matter of welfare states confronting diversity. It's a question of different forms of welfare and how different forms of welfare are financed and uh, delivered which are important. Um, and I think that's sort of where my argument rested before, so that when welfare systems were good for immigrants or, or were better able to accommodate them, it was sort of as an unintended consequence of a, of, of a structural feature. And I think where I, I think it's important perhaps to move on a little bit is to introduce um, a role for culture, discourse, and for political choices. So, the, so it's not only unintended consequences, but intended consequences, um, which are sometimes important. I think we see this, for example, in the um, extension of the portal to aliens in 1803, for which there is no structural explanation, but, and, in, and is justified in terms of natural rights by the Judge Lord Ellenborough. I think one can see it in the um, Benthamite insistence that, um, that the Irish are included within, within the poor law in the mid-19th century. In the mid-19th century, there were sort of changing ideas about how people might become a member of the local community. 
This is James Corder, the clerk to the Poor Law Union in Birmingham, speaking in 1860. He says, when a person, and this is in favour of irremovability, so here's a local poor law official actually saying, we should take, a, we should take care of migrants um, insofar as the poor law did take care of people. He says, when a person, whether artisan or labourer, has been conferring on a community the benefit of his skill or labour, he has a claim on that community. There is a sense of earning an entitlement through labour. And that is, is new. It, it, it seems to me that one doesn't find that sort of idea being articulated um, before the 1830s or 1840s. And there are interesting, I think, and this sort of ties in with the aliens point, there's a basic ideas about, about individual rights and individual personhood. The concept of irremovability, which I mentioned before, has been very important in the 18, from the 1840s onwards. Irremovability was actually not invented in the 1840s. It existed in the early 18th century, but in a very restricted case. It applied not to people, but in a sense to property. People were irremovable under the poor law in the 18th century if they were on a property that they had inherited. So, they, so if you inherited a property, it could be a small, you know, just a small piece of land, and you needed poor relief, you couldn't be sent away. But that was because of the property. It wasn't because of you as a person. What we move to in the 19th century is a different construction of what irremovability was. It was because people had contributed through their labour to the local community and had been resident for a period of years. So I, so I, I think there are changes, obviously, in the realm of discourse and culture and also ideology and norms, which means there were political, were and there are political choices being made here. It's not only a function of structure and of unintended consequences. And um, I think one sees that, I think, in the debate over um, our immigrant welfare entitlements now. So I think it's not only important, as it were, from a historical point of view to introduce the realm of choice and political discourse, but I think it's also important to introduce this element when we think about the, uh, the ramifications and the continuations of these debates in the present.